Week 3 Lecture, January 31st, Avoiding the Single Story and Contributing to the Conversation Ethically. This week I've combined a couple of topics I like to discuss with my students because I think they're actually closely related. First, we'll talk about how to contribute to what's called the scholarly conversation, and then we'll discuss how to avoid the single story effect that can result from allowing our cognitive biases to influence how we conduct research. Both relate to holding ourselves accountable for engaging in an effective and ethical research process and producing writing that reflects that ethical stance. So what exactly is a scholarly conversation? The joining the scholarly conversation video posted in this week's folder demonstrates this concept well with an analogy, asking you to imagine yourself going to a big party with a lot of people. The party's been happening for a while and will go on after you leave. But while you're there, you probably want to talk to people. Do you just plop yourself into the middle of a conversation between a bunch of strangers and add your two cents without any context for the discussion? Maybe, and maybe you get lucky enough to not sound like you're clueless. But more likely, you'll avoid doing this because you know if you do, you'll look kind of dumb. Scholarship on a topic is like that. It's like a conversation between a lot of academics that has likely been happening for a long time. As a student, you definitely have something to contribute to the conversation, but it's wise to take stock of what's happened so far in that conversation before you add to it. That's why we do background research. I can't understand what's been said unless I actively seek that information out. Once I have a good understanding of it, I'm in a much better position to add my own thoughts and theories. For that reason, we'll spend the bulk of the semester learning how to find good sources, evaluate them for usefulness and credibility, summarize what they say, and then synthesize them into our own arguments. As the Introduction to College Research textbook points out in this week's selection, students participate in this scholarly conversation whenever they engage in research or write a paper on a specific topic, but it's usually not framed that way for you. I find it useful to think of research and writing through this lens because it makes the work feel more purposeful, like what we say about a topic actually matters and isn't just a thing we do for the sake of doing it. That makes it even more important to choose a topic you care about. If you can't get at least a little excited about what you're studying, then who cares about participating in a scholarly conversation? In this class, what you do and say definitely has merit. But participating in the scholarly conversation requires an ethical framework. If you're going to become part of this broader discussion on your topic of choice, you need to do it legitimately. Yes, it's important not to plagiarize other people's work, either intentionally or unintentionally. But citing sources has an even larger purpose. It shows you did the work to understand the conversation you're entering. You have enough context to make a meaningful contribution, but your reader, whether it's me or someone more public, won't know that unless you show us where you got your information. And that's where citations come in. I really want you to understand that citing sources isn't just something you do to avoid getting in trouble, because in my experience, that's not a good enough motivation. You're doing it to show you know what you're talking about. Some of us are fine talking about things we don't know much about, because hey, at least we sound kind of smart. But I suspect most of us actually want to know what we're talking about. Citing sources demonstrates to others that we're well-informed and that our argument is built on actual evidence rather than just empty assumptions. That brings us to the second part of this lecture, cognitive biases and the single story phenomenon. If you've ever taken intro to psychology or a course like it, you've probably heard of cognitive bias. All the sources in this week's folder describe cognitive bias as a systematic error in thinking, and it can happen for a wide variety of reasons. 
On the one hand, our brains are wired for bias as a kind of survival mechanism. Imagine you're walking down a dark alley in an unknown city, and you see a man in dark clothes coming towards you down the alley. Your instinct, especially if you're a woman, might be to walk faster or to turn around and run the other way. This response ultimately stems from your brain's biased beliefs, that a woman alone in a dark alley is not safe, that men walking down dark city alleys are dangerous, that men who wear dark clothes while walking down unlit alleys are trying to blend in so no one sees them, possibly meaning they have nefarious purposes like robbing unsuspecting strangers, etc., etc. These beliefs may come from personal experience or social programming, but they're nevertheless meant to protect you. Sure, you're making a bunch of generalizations about this stranger you don't know. He could be a nice guy taking a shortcut across town or searching for his lost dog, but it's a risk worth taking to stay alive and in one piece. Other cognitive biases stem from our flawed memories, what we tend to pay attention to and what we want to be true. That's when you start getting in trouble. The number one bias you have to watch out for in research is confirmation bias, the tendency to pay attention to information that conforms to your existing beliefs. This too has a self-protective function in that we want to enlarge the size of our social groups by sticking with people like ourselves. Unfortunately, it's also a significant contributor to social and political division. If I'm conservative, I'm more likely to read right-leaning news sources. If I'm liberal, I'm more likely to read left-leaning news sources. If I'm moderate, I will struggle to find moderate news sources because the media, like humans, trends toward extremes. The more I dig into the community of which I'm a part, the less I am exposed to beliefs different than mine and the more right I think I am. We become more and more entrenched in our beliefs and people on the other side seem more and more like the enemy. There are many, many cognitive biases. Some are more relevant to research than others. Anchoring bias, the tendency to rely on the first piece of information you learned about a topic, is a very real risk in research. There's something about that early information that doesn't want to give up its place in our brains. Attentional bias means you have a tendency to pay attention to certain information and dismiss other information. This isn't always a bad thing. Some information really isn't worth giving the time of day. But it can be similar to confirmation bias, making it incredibly hard to see other sides to an issue. Sometimes, the Dunning-Kruger effect takes hold, making you believe some people are smarter and therefore more trustworthy or reliable than they really are. The thing about biases is that you can't possibly control for all of them in research. It would be a full-time job. But being aware they exist and being willing to identify and question your assumptions throughout the research process is key to avoiding some of the most significant negative effects of these biases. I can give you lots of examples of how I've seen this in research, but the most perfect one comes from an intro to research student I had in 2021. She wanted to research a very public conflict a pop star was dealing with. But the more I encouraged her to seek out opposing or differing viewpoints on the issue, the more she dug in her heels. One day, she came up to me after class, exasperated with my repeated advice. She said, I don't think I can research this, because I know my opinion is right. I'll never be able to see the other side. I was proud of her for being honest with both of us, and I had kind of seen this coming. While I would rather have pushed her into that uncomfortable place of having to look at the other side, I admired her ability to say it just wasn't going to happen because of how strongly she felt about the topic. So she chose another topic about which she had a little less emotional investment and her project turned out to be fantastic. All of this brings me to what I call the single story effect, 
Maybe others have called it this as well, but I haven't come across the term yet. Maybe you're already familiar with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's work. Her TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, is 15 years old at this point and has circulated the internet millions of times. She's also a powerful writer. I'm not a big fiction reader, but her novel Purple Hibiscus is awesome. I suspect one of the reasons people like her talk so much is that it resonates with us. She starts by talking about her experience growing up in Nigeria as a book-obsessed child who read British stories more than Nigerian ones because of their broad availability. That impacted her understanding of what British and other non-Nigerian people were like. As she began writing, those preconceptions found their way into her own stories, because while she lived in Nigeria and was Nigerian, she didn't think Nigerians like her wrote books. It seemed important to her that she write stories that were accessible to others, and that meant British. She also talks about misconceptions Americans had about her when she moved to the U.S. to go to college and the misconceptions she had about Americans. Her stories are funny when you listen to them. Why don't people realize Africa is a continent, not a country? But they're also quite telling. Adachi brings to light an important point about storytelling, and while she's mainly talking about fiction, I see research as another form of storytelling, so I think her talk is very applicable to what you'll be doing this semester. We all fall into the single story trap at some point or other. That is, we create a single story about a group of people, a geographic region, a phenomenon, and we hold on to it with all our might, often without realizing it. We don't want to let it go because it's comfortable and familiar, and frankly, learning we might be wrong is uncomfortable. Now, let us briefly apply this to research. You're choosing your own topic this semester. You will presumably choose a topic because you're invested in it in some way. You care about it. So, what's your single story about that topic? What's your single story about the people or places involved in it? What's your single story about your side of the issue and about people on other sides of the issue? What do you believe to be true? And perhaps more importantly, what will shake up your beliefs such that you can open yourself to the possibility that you're wrong, partially or entirely? I want to be clear here. I'm not saying your thesis is wrong. I'm saying it very well could be, but you won't know that unless you get out of your single story bubble. You have to pull multiple stories into your sphere of influence to understand the issue in all its complexity, and you can't do that until you acknowledge that you have a single story. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have strong feelings about the issue one way or the other. But I suspect you do, because it's hard to develop a thesis without taking a position, and it's hard to take a position if you don't care whether you're right or wrong. So, some self-evaluation is required here before you begin that research process. Ethical and legal use of information from introduction to college research. Learning objectives. By the end of this chapter, you will be able to, one, describe the value in respecting the original ideas of others, two, define plagiarism and how one can responsibly and ethically use information, and three, recognize that students are active participants and creators of scholarship, not just consumers of information. Contributing to the conversation. As a college student, whenever you complete an academic assignment, be it a research paper, a speech, or any other assignment in which you gather and synthesize information on a topic, you are participating in what is called a scholarly conversation. The term scholarly conversation describes the existing body of knowledge about a topic. This body of knowledge may include published books, presentations, research articles, conferences, discussions, online resources, and more. 
Your assignments are a way to add your own voice to the scholarly conversation. By reviewing what research has been done, drawing connections and conclusions from published information, and adding your own experiences, opinions, and ideas about what previous research has shown. Why we cite sources. According to ethical use and citing sources, quote, academic research leads us to the insight that comes from gaining perspectives and understandings from other people through what we read, watch, and hear. In academic work, we must tell our readers who and what led us to our conclusions, end quote. When we engage in conversations with other people, we often say things like, I heard on the news today that, or the cashier at the store said. When we do this, we not only back up and further support the point we're trying to make, but we also give more credibility to what we're saying by letting others know the origin of the information. It's also a good idea to let others know where our information came from when engaging in a scholarly conversation. A citation is a mention to another source, and the phrase citing your sources means you've communicated the sources of information that you've used in your own work. It's unethical to use somebody else's information in your own work and not cite where you got that information. See section on plagiarism and academic integrity next. As long as you give credit where credit is due, using information from others to support your own thoughts, opinions, and research findings is good practice. Not only does it acknowledge the hard work of others, but it also shows that you did your research on the topic, you know what information exists about it, and you can integrate your knowledge into the existing research and contribute to the scholarly conversation. The following video by North Carolina State University Libraries has a great summary of what citations are and why we use them. At some point in your career as a student, you've probably had a teacher tell you to cite your sources while writing a research paper. But what is a citation, and why do we do it? Citation is the practice of identifying the sources you have quoted, paraphrased, or otherwise used in your writing, and is pretty standard practice in academic writing. Citations serve several purposes. For one, it allows your reader to follow up on and to verify claims that you make in your writing, and it gives you the opportunity to acknowledge the people whose ideas you have used to advance your argument. Essentially, you are recognizing that your research and scholarship builds upon the work and the ideas of many others who came before you. The result is that citation helps readers see the connections between books and articles published by many different authors, as well as how they connect to your own ideas. There are many different styles of citation established by various academic and professional organizations. The most common styles, however, are MLA, APA, Chicago, and CSE. Most styles involve a two-part process. First, you acknowledge a source with a brief notation after you use it in the body of your paper. Then, you provide more detailed information about the source at the end of your paper in the works cited list or bibliography. This more detailed entry will include essential publication information about the source, including the title of the work, the author, and the date of publication, so that your readers can find it. Each citation style has a published guide outlining all the details of how to use it, and there are also many online tools to help. If you have any questions about citation as a practice or about a particular citation style, ask a librarian for help. Plagiarism and Academic Integrity Plagiarism. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word plagiarize as, quote, to steal and pass off the ideas or words of another as one's own. Use another's production without crediting the source, end quote. 
When you use the words and ideas of others in your own work without citing where you got that information from, this is considered plagiarism. Whether a student purposely tries to pass off information as their own, for example, copying and pasting text or paraphrasing another source without giving credit, or does so unintentionally by not knowing how to cite sources, plagiarism goes against the moral and ethical code for students called academic integrity. Academic integrity is the expectation that all students will be honest and responsible and will not plagiarize or cheat, and that they will be motivated by more than just getting good grades. Most colleges have consequences for violating academic integrity, which may include suspension or expulsion from the institution. According to Ethical Use and Citing Sources, quote, as a student, you will be both using others' knowledge as well as your own insights to create new scholarship. To do this in a way that meets academic integrity standards, you must acknowledge the part of your work that develops from others' efforts. You do this by citing the work of others. You plagiarize when you fail to acknowledge the work of others and do not follow appropriate citation guidelines." End quote. Intellectual property. When you avoid plagiarism by citing your sources, you're respecting the time and energy other people put into creating their intellectual property. Just like physical property that you can call your own, Intellectual property describes an expression of the human mind that can be owned and protected. Once somebody puts their creative ideas into a fixed and tangible format, like in the form of a book, movie, or song, that becomes intellectual property and can be protected. Intellectual property comes in many forms, but the most popular are copyright, patents, and trademarks. Copyright is the most common form of intellectual property that has relevance for college-level research. Copyright. Copyright is a type of protection for intellectual property that is automatically applied to any creative work that is placed in a fixed, tangible format. That means the email that you wrote to your instructor this morning or the doodle you drew in your notes during English are all protected by copyright because they are both in a tangible format and are creative and original. In other words, nothing exactly like them has ever existed until you created them. Though works can be registered through the U.S. Copyright Office, that is not mandatory, and even things you see without the copyright symbol, the C inside a circle, or a copyright notice can be and should be assumed to be protected by copyright. Copyright gives you exclusive rights to whatever you created, meaning others cannot legally copy, distribute, display, modify, or perform, for example, a play or a piece of music, without getting your permission to do so. Copyright in the United States lasts the life of the creator plus an additional 70 years. Fair use. Fair use is an exception to copyright in which you can use a copyright protected work without getting permission from the creator. There's no hard and fast way to determine whether or not a use of a copyrighted work is a fair use, but there is a four-factor test that can help measure how fair the fair use is and whether or not the use is an infringement of copyright. These factors are, one, the purpose and character of your use, two, the nature of the copyrighted work, three, the amount and substantiality of the portion taken, and four, the effect of the use upon the potential market. Fair use weighs heavily in favor of educational uses. So in most cases, using images and or videos you found online for your presentation for class is not going to land you in hot water. Why is this? Using an image or video that belongs to somebody else without permission for an educational use is not likely to impact the potential market. It's only being shared with the people in your class and it's being used to educate yourself and others. It's still always good practice to cite where the content came from and try to use openly licensed content that allows people to use it without seeking permission first, whenever possible. 
Creative Commons. The world's first copyright law was enacted in the 1700s, way before the invention of the internet. The internet allows people to share information with the touch of a virtual button, yet our current copyright law restricts this type of sharing unless you get permission from the creator first. While copyright means that the picture of your cat that you took and uploaded online cannot be redistributed by anybody else without your permission, it also means that we can't use copyrighted music in a slideshow of 50 cat pictures you want to put together and share with friends online. In 2001, a nonprofit organization called Creative Commons saw the need for an improvement upon copyright in the digital age. We needed something that enabled the sharing and remixing of knowledge and creativity, which were able to do so easily online. They developed tools called Creative Commons licenses that allow creators to define what they want others to be able to do and not do with their work. Creative Commons licenses free everyone from needing to track down creators and ask for permission before using their works, and encourage creativity by permitting adaptations and remixes of Creative Commons licensed works. This textbook incorporates content that is Creative Commons licensed and the entire textbook is licensed with a Creative Commons license as well to encourage others to use and adapt the content in a way that works best for them. If you're interested in using images, video, music, and other creative content that has an open license, try CC Search or try looking for a Creative Commons filter when using Google, Flickr, and YouTube. Conclusion. This chapter covered the importance of student voices in the scholarly conversation or the existing body of knowledge on a certain topic and how students can support their ideas by referencing past research and published works in a legal and ethical manner. This chapter covered why citing sources is important, and the citing sources chapter will cover how to cite sources. Take a second to think of all the conversations you have each day. They probably happen all over the place. You're constantly exchanging ideas and evaluating new pieces of information, Doing academic research is a lot like having a conversation with experts on your topic. You can also think about it like going to a party. A big party. The kind that started long before you got there and will keep going long after you leave. You could just show up and start talking, but conversations are complicated. You have to listen a while to figure out what people are saying. Once you have a sense of what's going on, then you can join the conversation. With research, listening can mean reading, watching, discussing, any way you interact with information. Joining the conversation could be writing a paper, making a video, and even posting on social media or talking to your classmate. Don't just show up and say things. Learn about the part of the conversation that's already happened and try to see it from multiple perspectives. You'll also start to notice when voices have been left out of conversations. Part of your job as a college researcher is to recognize what's missing. Not sure how to catch up on a scholarly conversation and evaluate all the perspectives? Ask a librarian. Avoiding Plagiarism from GCF Global's tutorial, Use Information Correctly. What is plagiarism? Plagiarism is presenting someone else's work as your own. It can include copying and pasting text from a website into a project you're working on, or taking an idea from a book without including a citation to give credit to the book's author. Plagiarism is common, and the internet has made it even more common. However, if you're careful to cite your sources, it's not too difficult to avoid plagiarism. Listen to the video to learn some tips for avoiding plagiarism. Whether you're in the academic, creative, or professional world, plagiarism is all too common. 
But what is it exactly? According to the Oxford Dictionary, plagiarism is the practice of taking someone else's work or ideas and passing them off as one's own. Let's say you're writing something for the company newsletter, and you find a great article online that's full of useful information. So you take several parts of that article, change a few words around, and submit it without giving credit to the original author. That's plagiarism, and it can lead to serious consequences. In school, taking credit for someone else's work could mean you fail an assignment or class, or face disciplinary action. In the workplace, it could result in damage to your reputation, legal repercussions, or even losing your job. Even if you accidentally do it, such as forgetting to cite a source or misquoting someone, it can quickly get you in trouble. Luckily, we know a few strategies that'll help you avoid plagiarism. First, always cite your sources. Showing where you found your information gives credit to the original authors and helps reinforce the legitimacy of your content. If you're quoting from a source, always quote the source's exact words. When inserting one into your work, place quotation marks around it and be sure to include the author's name in the same sentence. When you want to discuss information from a source without quoting it directly, it's important you rewrite that information in your own words. Along with citing the source, use different language and sentence structures and explore the source's ideas from your own perspective. This strategy can help you say something new, original, and plagiarism-free. Plagiarism can seem like an easy shortcut that'll save you time and effort, but it will only hurt you in the long run. Be clear and upfront about where you get your information, and you'll be free to create original content you can be proud of. Example 1. Sylvia works at the regional headquarters for a retail clothing chain. The company is planning to open a new store in Shelbyfield, and Sylvia is tasked with writing an article about Shelbyfield in the company newsletter. She finds a really good article online that talks about the history of Shelbyfield. Because she doesn't have much time to write her article, she copies several paragraphs and pastes them into it. She then changes a few words so it won't be an exact copy. When her coworkers read the company newsletter, they compliment Sylvia on her well-written article. What's wrong with this situation? Sylvia has taken credit for someone else's writing. Her coworkers had complimented her on work that she hadn't actually done so her professional reputation is partly built on a lie. If someone finds out that she copied someone else's work, her reputation could be permanently damaged, and she may even get into trouble. It's actually okay that she got information from a website. Sylvia's mistake was that she wasn't upfront about her source. She should have included a citation, a brief note saying where the information came from. Instead of changing a few words, she could have put the text in quotation marks to show that it came from another source. Or, she could have completely reworked the town history to give it a different angle, while still including a citation. Example 2. Dave has a home improvement blog he updates in his free time. Sometimes he gets an idea from another website, and he writes a blog article based on it. Because he writes all the text himself, he doesn't link to the site where he found the idea. What's wrong with this situation? Although Dave didn't copy the text itself, he copied the ideas from the other website. He should have included a link to the website so he's not taking credit for the idea. It's only fair to the other authors, and it also makes Dave's blog seem more professional. 
Tips for avoiding plagiarism. Even if you don't mean to plagiarize, it's still possible to do it without realizing it. It's important to understand that it's still plagiarism, even if it's accidental. Here are a few basic tips to help reduce the risk that you'll accidentally plagiarize. If you use a source, cite it. The main way to avoid plagiarism is to cite your sources. If you use a source without citing it, you're implying that you came up with the information on your own. Citing your sources gives proper credit to the original authors, and it also lets your readers find the original source if they want to learn more. Use quotation marks when necessary. Sometimes it makes sense to use the source's exact words instead of paraphrasing or rewriting. If you need to quote the original source, make sure you place quotation marks around the original text. Don't just change a few words. Many writers try to avoid plagiarism by simply changing a few words or putting sentences in a different order. But even if you use a thesaurus to change every word, the original author's sentence structures are unchanged. To properly use another author's idea, you should rewrite it in your own words while still citing the original source. If it's not possible to rewrite it, then use an exact quote with quotation marks. Synthesize the information. It's much easier to avoid plagiarism if you focus on developing a unique point or perspective rather than relying on your sources to make all of your points for you. Instead of simply stitching together various sources, try to synthesize the information so that you're creating something new. For example, what is the point the author is trying to make? How does it differ from the other sources you're using? How do they all relate to the point you're trying to make? If something is common knowledge, you don't need to cite a source. For example, Paris is the capital of France is a well-known fact which is not disputed, so you wouldn't need to include a citation for that fact. How should you cite online sources? The way you cite your sources will vary depending on how formal you need to be. For example, if you're writing a blog article, it's often enough to simply link to the original source. You may also want to mention the original author's name and or the name of the website to help your readers tell at a glance where you're getting your information. If you're writing a more formal paper, you'll generally need to use a specific format for citations. You can use a style guide such as the Chicago Manual of Style to give your citations a consistent style. For these types of citations, you may list the sources as footnotes or include a bibliography at the end, or both. I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. I grew up on a university campus in eastern Nigeria. My mother says that I started reading at the age of two, although I think four is probably close to the truth. So I was an early reader, and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer. And when I began to write at about the age of seven, stories in pencil with crayon illustrations that my poor mother was obligated to read, I wrote exactly the kinds of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow. They ate apples. <coughs> and they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. Now, this despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, I had never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was no need to. 
My characters also drank a lot of ginger beer because the characters in the British books I read drank ginger beer. Never mind that I had no idea what ginger beer was. <laughs> and for many years afterwards, I would have a desperate desire to taste ginger beer. But that is another story. What this demonstrates, I think, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story, particularly as children. Because all I had read were books in which characters were foreign, I had become convinced that books, by their very nature, had to have foreigners in them and had to be about things with which I could not personally identify. Now, things changed when I discovered African books. There weren't many of them available, and they weren't quite as easy to find as the foreign books, but because of writers like Chinua Achebe and Kamara Laye, I went through a mental shift in my perception of literature. I realized that people like me, girls with skin the color of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. I started to write about things I recognized. Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination, they opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. I come from a conventional middle-class Nigerian family. My father was a professor. My mother was an administrator. And so we had, as was the norm, living domestic help who would often come from nearby rural villages. So the year I turned eight, we got a new houseboy. His name was Fide. The only thing my mother told us about him was that his family was very poor. My mother sent yams and rice and our old clothes to his family. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, finish your food. Don't you know people like Fide's family have nothing? So I felt enormous pity for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, we went to his village to visit. And his mother showed us a beautifully patterned basket made of dyed raffia that his brother had made. I was startled. It had not occurred to me that anybody in his family could actually make something. All I had heard about them was how poor they were, so that it had become impossible for me to see them as anything else but poor. Their poverty was my single story of them. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked where I had learned to speak English so well and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my tribal music and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. <laughs> she assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this. She had felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way, no possibility of feelings more complex than pity, no possibility of a connection as human equals. I must say that before I went to the US, I didn't consciously identify as African. 
But in the US, whenever Africa came out, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. But I did come to embrace this new identity, and in many ways, I think of myself now as African, although I still get quite irritable when Africa is referred to as a country, the most recent example being my otherwise wonderful flight from Lagos two days ago, in which um, there was an announcement on the Virgin flight about their charity walk in India, Africa, and other countries. So after I had spent some years in the US as an African, I began to understand my roommate's response to me. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind, white foreigner. I would see Africans in the same way that I, as a child, had seen Fide's family. This single story of Africa ultimately comes, I think, from Western literature. Now, here's a quote from the writing of a London merchant called John Locke, who sailed to West Africa in 1561 and kept a fascinating account of his voyage. After referring to the black Africans as beasts who have no houses, he writes, they are also people without heads, having their mouths and eyes in their breasts. Now, I've laughed every time I've read this, and one must admire the imagination of John Locke. But what is important about his writing is that it represents the beginning of a tradition of telling African stories in the West, a tradition of sub-Saharan Africa as a place of negatives, of difference, of darkness, of people who, in the words of the wonderful poet <coughs> Rudyard Kipling, are half devil, half child. And so I began to realize that my American roommate must have, throughout her life, seen and heard different versions of this single story as had a professor who once told me that my novel was not authentically African. Now, I was quite willing to contend that there were a number of things wrong with the novel, that it had failed in a number of places, but I had not quite imagined that it had failed at achieving something called African authenticity. In fact, I did not know what African authenticity was. The professor told me that my characters were too much like him, an educated and middle-class man. My characters drove cars. They were not starving. Therefore, they were not authentically African. But I must quickly add that I, too, am just as guilty on the question of a single story. A few years ago, I visited Mexico from the US. The political climate in the US at the time was tense, and there were debates going on about immigration. And, as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were fleecing the healthcare system, sneaking across the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. I remember walking around on my first day in Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling up to tears in the marketplace, smoking, laughing. I remember first feeling slight surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with shame. I realized that I had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in my mind, the abject immigrant. I had bought into the single story of Mexicans, and I could not have been more ashamed of myself. So that is how to create a single story. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There is a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nkale. It's a noun that loosely translates to to be greater than another. Like our economic and political worlds, stories too are defined by the principle of Nkale. How they are told, who tells them, when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. 
The Palestinian poet Murid Baghouti writes that if you want to dispossess a people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with secondly. Start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British, and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with the failure of the African state and not with the colonial creation of the African state, and you have an entirely different story. I recently spoke at a university where a student told me that it was such a shame that Nigerian men were, were <coughs> physical abusers like the father character in my novel. I told him that I had just read a novel called American Psycho. <laughs> and, and that it was such a shame that young Americans were serial murderers. <laughs> now, now. Now, now, obviously, I said this in a fit of mild irritation, but <laughs> it would never have occurred to me to think that just because I had read a novel in which a character was a serial killer, that he was somehow representative of all Americans. And now, this is not because I'm a better person than that student, but because of America's cultural and economic power, I had many stories of America. I had read Thailand, Updike, and Steinberg, and Gateskill, I did not have a single story of America. When I learned some years ago that writers were expected to have had really unhappy childhoods to be successful, I began to think about how I could invent horrible things my parents had done to me. <laughs> But the truth is that I had a very happy childhood, full of laughter and love in a very close-knit family. But I also had grandfathers who died in refugee camps. My cousin, Polly, died because he could not get adequate health care. One of my closest friends, Okoloma, died in a plane crash because our fire trucks did not have water. I grew up under repressive military governments that devalued education so that sometimes my parents were not paid their salaries. And so as a child, I saw jam disappear from the breakfast table. Then margarine disappeared. Then bread became too expensive. Then milk became rationed. And most of all, a kind of normalized political fear invaded our lives. All of these stories make me who I am. But to insist on only these negative stories is to flatten my experience and to overlook the many other stories that formed me. The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete they make one story become the only story. Of course, Africa is a continent full of catastrophes, the immense ones such as the horrific rapes in Congo and depressing ones such as the fact that 5,000 people apply for one job vacancy in Nigeria. But there are other stories that are not about catastrophe, and it is very important, it is just as important to talk about them. I've always felt that it is impossible to engage properly with a place or a person without engaging with all of the stories of that place and that person. The consequence of the single story is this, it robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. So what if before my Mexican trip, I had followed the immigration debate from both sides, the US and the Mexican? 
What if my mother had told us that Fide's family was poor and had walking? What if we had an African television network that broadcast diverse African stories all over the world, what the Nigerian writer Chino Achebe calls a balance of stories? What if my roommate knew about my Nigerian publisher, Mukhtar Bakari, a remarkable man who left his job in a bank to follow his dream and start a publishing house? Now, the conventional wisdom was that Nigerians don't read literature. He disagreed. He felt that people who could read would read if you made literature affordable and available to them. Shortly after he published my first novel, I went to a TV station in Lagos to do an interview. And a woman who walked there as a messenger came up to me and said, I really liked your novel. I didn't like the ending. Now you must write a sequel, and this is what will happen. <laughs> and she went on to tell me what to write in the sequel. Now, I was not only charmed, I was very moved. Here was a woman, part of the ordinary masses of Nigerians who were not supposed to be readers. She had not only read the book, but she had taken ownership of it and felt justified in telling me what to write in the sequel. Now, what if my roommate knew about my friend Fumi Yonda, a fearless woman who hosts a TV show in Lagos and is determined to tell the stories that we prefer to forget? What if my roommate knew about the heart procedure that was performed in the Lagos hospital last week? What if my roommate knew about contemporary Nigerian music, talented people singing in English and Pidgin and Igbo and Yoruba and Ijo, mixing influences from Jay-Z to Fela to Bob Marley to their grandfathers? What if my roommate knew about the female lawyer who recently went to court in Nigeria to challenge a ridiculous law that required women to get their husband's consent before renewing their passports? What if my roommate knew about Nollywood, full of innovative people making films despite great technical odds, films so popular that they really are the best example of Nigerians consuming what they produce? What if my roommate knew about my wonderfully ambitious hair braider who has just started her own business selling hair extensions? Or about the millions of other Nigerians who start businesses and sometimes fail, but continue to nurse ambition? Every time I am home, I am confronted with the usual sources of irritation for most Nigerians, our failed infrastructure, our failed government, but also by the incredible resilience of people who thrive despite the government rather than because of it. I teach writing workshops in Lagos every summer, and it is amazing to me how many people apply, how many people are eager to write, to tell stories. My Nigerian publisher and I have just started a nonprofit called Farafina Trust, and we have big dreams of building libraries and refurbishing libraries that already exist, and providing books for state schools that don't have anything in their libraries, and also of organizing lots and lots of workshops on reading and writing for all the people who are eager to tell our many stories. Stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. The American writer Alice Walker wrote this about um, her southern relatives who had moved to the north, and she introduced them to a book about the southern life that they had left behind. They sat around reading the book themselves, listening to me read the book, and the kind of paradise was regained.
I would like to end with this thought, that when we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. Thank you. What is Cognitive Bias? An article by Kendra Cherry, published November 7, 2022, on Very Well Mind. A cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking that occurs when people are processing and interpreting information in the world around them and affects the decisions and judgments that they make. The human brain is powerful but subject to limitations. Cognitive biases are often a result of your brain's attempt to simplify information processing. Biases often work as rules of thumb that help you make sense of the world and reach decisions with relative speed. Some of these biases are related to memory. The way you remember an event may be biased for a number of reasons, and that, in turn, can lead to biased thinking and decision-making. Other cognitive biases might be related to problems with attention. Since attention is a limited resource, people have to be selective about what they pay attention to in the world around them. Because of this, subtle biases can creep in and influence the way you see and think about the world. The concept of cognitive bias was first introduced by researchers Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman in 1972. Since then, researchers have described a number of different types of biases that affect decision-making in a wide range of areas, including social behavior, cognition, behavioral economics, education, management, healthcare, business, and finance. Cognitive bias versus logical fallacy. People sometimes confuse cognitive biases with logical fallacies, but the two are not the same. A logical fallacy stems from an error in a logical argument, while a cognitive bias is rooted in thought processing errors, often arising from problems with memory, attention, attribution, and other mental mistakes. Signs of cognitive bias. Everyone exhibits cognitive bias. It might be easier to spot in others, but it's important to know that it's something that also affects your thinking. Some signs that you might be influenced by some type of cognitive bias include only paying attention to news stories that confirm your opinions, blaming outside factors when things don't go your way, attributing other people's success to luck, but taking personal credit for your own accomplishments, assuming that everyone else shares your opinions or beliefs, learning a little about a topic, and then assuming you know all there is to know about it. When you're making judgments and decisions about the world around you, you like to think that you're objective, logical, and capable of taking in and evaluating all the information that is available to you. Unfortunately, these biases sometimes trip us up, leading to poor decisions and bad judgments. Types of cognitive bias. Learn more about a few of the most common types of cognitive biases that can distort your thinking. Actor-observer bias. This is the tendency to attribute your own actions to external causes while attributing other people's behaviors to internal causes. For example, you attribute your high cholesterol level to genetics while you consider others to have a high level due to poor diet and lack of exercise. Anchoring bias. This is the tendency to rely too heavily on the very first piece of information you learn. For example, if you learn the average price for a car is a certain value, you'll think any amount below that is a good deal, perhaps not searching for better deals. You can use this bias to set the expectations of others by putting the first information on the table for consideration. Attentional bias. This is the tendency to pay attention to some things while simultaneously ignoring others. For example, 
When making a decision on which car to buy, you may pay attention to the look and feel of the exterior and interior, but ignore the safety record and gas mileage. Availability heuristic. This is placing greater value on information that comes to your mind quickly. You give greater credence to this information and tend to overestimate the probability and likelihood of similar things happening in the future. Confirmation bias. This is favoring information that conforms to your existing beliefs and discounting evidence that does not conform. False consensus effect. This is the tendency to overestimate how much other people agree with you. Functional fixedness. This is the tendency to see objects as only working in a particular way. For example, if you don't have a hammer, you never consider that a big wrench can also be used to drive a nail into the wall. You may think you don't need thumbtacks because you have no cork board on which to tack things, but not consider their other uses. This could extend to people's functions, such as not realizing a personal assistant has skills to be in a leadership role. Halo effect. Your overall impression of a person influences how you feel and think about their character. This especially applies to physical attractiveness, influencing how you rate their other qualities. Misinformation effect. This is the tendency for post-event information to interfere with the memory of the original event. It's easy to have your memory influenced by what you hear about the event from others. Knowledge of this effect has led to a mistrust of eyewitness information. Optimism bias. This bias leads you to believe that you are less likely to suffer from misfortune and more likely to attain success than your peers. Self-serving bias. This is the tendency to blame external forces when bad things happen and give yourself credit when good things happen. For example, when you win a poker hand, it's due to your skill at reading the other players and knowing the odds, while when you lose, it's due to getting dealt a poor hand. The Dunning-Kruger effect. This is when people who believe that they are smarter and more capable than they really are. For example, when they can't recognize their own incompetence. At times, multiple biases may play a role in influencing your decisions and thinking. For example, you might misremember an event, the misinformation effect, and assume that everyone else shares that same memory of what happened, the false consensus effect. Causes of bias. If you had to think about every possible option when making a decision, it would take a lot of time to make even the simplest choice. Because of the sheer complexity of the world around you and the amount of information in the environment, it's necessary sometimes to rely on some mental shortcuts that allow you to act quickly. Cognitive biases can be caused by a number of different things, but it is these mental shortcuts, known as heuristics, that often play a major contributing role. While they can often be surprisingly accurate, they can also lead to errors in thinking. Other factors that can also contribute to these biases, emotions, individual motivations, limits on the mind's ability to process information, and social pressures. Cognitive bias may also increase as people get older due to decreased cognitive flexibility. Impact of cognitive bias. Cognitive biases can lead to distorted thinking. Conspiracy theory beliefs, for example, are often influenced by a variety of biases. But cognitive biases are not necessarily all bad. Psychologists believe that many of these biases serve an adaptive purpose. They allow us to reach decisions quickly. This can be vital if we're facing a dangerous or threatening situation. For example, if you're walking down a dark alley and spot a dark shadow that seems to be following you, a cognitive bias might lead you to assume that it's a mugger and that you need to exit the alley as quickly as possible. The dark shadow may have simply been caused by a flag waving in the breeze, 
but relying on mental shortcuts can often get you out of the way of danger in situations where decisions need to be made quickly. Tips for overcoming bias. Research suggests that cognitive training can help minimize cognitive biases in thinking. Some things that you can do to help overcome biases that might influence your thinking and decision-making include being aware of bias. Consider how biases might influence your thinking. In one study, researchers provided feedback and information that helped participants understand these biases and how they influence decisions. The results of the study indicated that this type of training could effectively reduce the effects of cognitive bias by 29%. Considering the factors that influence your decisions. Are there factors such as overconfidence or self-interest at play? Thinking about the influences on your decisions may help you make better choices. Challenging your biases. If you notice that there are factors influencing your choices, focus on actively challenging your biases. What are some factors you've missed? Are you giving too much weight to certain factors? Are you ignoring relevant information because it doesn't support your view? Thinking about these things and challenging your biases can make you a more critical thinker. Reducing cognitive bias may also be beneficial in the treatment of some mental health conditions. Cognitive bias modification therapy, or CBMT, is a treatment approach based on processes that are designed to reduce cognitive bias. This form of therapy has been used to help treat addictions, depression, and anxiety. Cognitive bias. People generally believe that they are mostly rational in their thinking, decisions, and actions. But even the smartest and best educated people often commit cognitive errors as they make financial, medical, personal, and ethical decisions. These errors in thinking, also called cognitive bias, affect all people in virtually every situation. For example, physicians must be aware of the error of overconfidence bias as they make diagnoses which could cause them to insufficiently value other doctors' opinions. Likewise, physicians, and everyone else, must watch out for confirmation bias, which is the tendency people have to process new information in a way that is heavily influenced by their existing beliefs. The anchoring effect is another bias in thinking, whereby people's initial focus on a particular factor number means that they fail to properly adjust their judgments as new and different information arises. There is also the cognitive error of overgeneralization, which is the tendency to jump to a broad conclusion based on a single piece of evidence. People are influenced in differing degrees by these and many other cognitive biases. Studies show that some errors in thinking can be moderated with education. For example, physicians can learn to recognize cognitive biases and so reduce their diagnostic mistakes. But even with effort, none of us will escape cognitive errors altogether. Knowing your brain is biased is critical to making it work better for you and everyone around you.